Rejoice in the Lord always. Those are the words of the Apostle Paul. And as we turn to John's Gospel this morning, we're going to hear similar words from Jesus. He is going to say to his disciples, Do not let your hearts be troubled. And when you and I hear words like that from Jesus or from Paul, there's probably a part of us that flinches a little bit. When we are commanded to rejoice or commanded not to let our hearts be troubled, there is a part of us, I think, that tends to recoil just a little bit. Don't we react on some level by thinking to ourselves, well, it's all very well saying that. It's all very well telling me not to let my heart be troubled. But how am I supposed to manage that in my situation? There are troubling things going on in my life. If Jesus and Paul knew what I'm facing today, they might say something a bit different, we think. They might be a bit more sensitive, not so idealistic. That may be our gut response. But this morning we're going to see when Jesus told his disciples not to let their hearts be troubled, they were in a situation that gave them plenty of reason to be troubled. Let's just remind ourselves of that. Last week we heard Jesus announce to his closest group of disciples, that one of them was going to betray him. Can you imagine how disconcerting that must have been? To be told that one of this small band of trusted brothers was a fraud. That one of these men you'd been through so much with was actually intent on destroying Jesus instead of following him. And in fact, those verses told us Jesus himself was troubled by this. We'll think later how it is that Jesus can be troubled while telling his disciples not to be troubled. But in the passage we looked at last week, it got worse. Because right after telling his disciples one of them would betray him, Jesus went on to tell them that he, Jesus, was going away. And they couldn't come with him. These men have left everything to follow Jesus and be with him. They abandoned their livelihoods to devote their lives to Jesus. And now he says he's leaving them. And on top of that, Peter went, Jesus went on to tell, to tell Peter that Peter didn't even have the strength to follow Jesus through the rest of this night. Never mind the rest of his life. Peter was the strongest one there in the group. If Peter didn't have what was needed to follow Jesus, how was there any hope for the rest of them? One of our trusted group is going to betray Jesus. Jesus is going away, and we don't have the strength to survive without Jesus. That is the context in which Jesus chooses to say, do not let your hearts be troubled. And if Jesus says those words in this situation, 
We have to hope he's able to offer these disciples some reasons not to be troubled. And if Jesus does have reasons, we can expect those reasons to help us also. So let's pick up in John chapter 14, verse 1. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1082. In the larger print Bibles, 1675. John chapter 14, verse 1, and we'll read down to verse 14. So right after announcing his betrayal, his departure, and Peter's imminent failure, Jesus says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or, at least, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And... They will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. This is God's word. And it doesn't give us all the reasons for these disciples not to let their hearts be troubled. There are more reasons in the next sections of John's gospel. But here, Jesus gives three reasons. First, in verses 1 to 3, Jesus going away to the cross has prepared a future for us in his Father's presence. In verse 1, Jesus says, you believe in God, believe also in me. In other words, you have been taught that God is trustworthy. The Old Testament scriptures testify to his trustworthiness. And Jesus says, you can have that same level of trust in me. 
This is another one of those places where Jesus claims equality with God the Father. He is as worthy of our faith and trust as his Father is. And here, what Jesus is asking the disciples to trust him for is their future destiny. Look at verse 2. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. In the Old Testament, God's house was the temple in Jerusalem. God was truly present there. But way back in chapter 2 of John's Gospel, Jesus signaled that the temple in Jerusalem had had its day. It had served its purpose. And in fact, even in its heyday, as wonderful as that temple was, it was still only a pointer to the true dwelling place of God. A temple not built by human hands. A temple where God's presence was experienced in its full glory. God's house in Jerusalem was just a token of the real thing. It was a temporary foretaste of heaven. And it's heaven Jesus is talking about here when he says, my father's house has many rooms. Meaning, there is enough space for all God's people. Heaven will never run out of room. And Jesus says to these disciples, I'm going away from you in order to prepare a place for you in heaven. The NIV says, I am going there to prepare a place for you. And that wording might lead us to think Jesus is going to go to heaven and do the place up a bit. So it'll be in good shape when the disciples arrive. But literally what Jesus says is, I am going to prepare a place for you. And what he means is, I'm going to the cross to prepare a place for you. That's what going away meant at the end of chapter 13. It is Jesus' work on the cross that will prepare a place in heaven for his disciples. So Jesus is not talking about renovating heaven so it will be ready for them. He's talking about dying as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is how Jesus will prepare a place for them in his Father's house. And yes, having prepared a place for them through his death, Jesus will rise from the dead and return to his Father's side in heaven. But wonderfully, that will not be the end of the story. Having prepared a place for them, Jesus will return to claim his people so they will be where he is. And that is why Jesus says to these disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Yes, your present situation is troubling, but your future is glorious. And that's the explanation for what we noticed earlier, the fact that on this night, when Jesus himself is troubled, 
he can tell his disciples not to be troubled. Jesus is troubled as he faces betrayal and death on the cross. But he can tell his disciples not to be troubled because his death on the cross will take away their deepest reason to be troubled. Jesus' death will prepare an eternal future for them in his Father's house. One writer says, because Jesus was troubled, his disciples don't have to be. And you and I, in our own troubling circumstances, we can consider the fact that Jesus has already prepared our place. Here in John 14, as he speaks to these disciples, the work of preparing a place is still ahead of Jesus. But you and I can look back on that preparation as a work Jesus has completed. He has died and is risen again. To us, the Jesus who has been to the cross says your future is settled and secure. You will be where I am in the bliss of my Father's presence, enjoying the full experience of his glory and goodness. And so today, even in the midst of your present troubling circumstances, you can learn to have a heart that is not troubled. Because it's full of this glorious future destiny. A destiny that can never be torn away from you. In another place, the New Testament describes it as an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Every day of our lives, we live with the supreme reason not to be troubled. The biggest issue of our lives has already been settled. Our eternal destination is with the Father and the Son. Whatever kind of disruption might come to cause waves in our lives, maybe even tidal waves of destruction in our lives, disruption, whatever comes, nothing at all can disrupt this. On the cross, our place has been prepared and our Savior will come back for us to make sure we enjoy the place he prepared for us. Great. Or at least, you and I might sense that this is great. But the disciples here round the table with Jesus, they don't seem very comforted or very uplifted by what Jesus has just said. He's just spoken about the Father's house, and the disciples are uneasy. Jesus is wonderful, and they love him, but Jesus is talking here about Almighty God. The one who, when he arrived on Mount Sinai in the Old Testament, told the Israelites not to touch the mountain or even approach the mountain on pain of death. 
This is the God who told Moses in the Old Testament, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And those words of God were underlined by the way God's temple in Jerusalem was set up. The ordinary people were kept at a decent distance from the temple. Even the priests in the temple were separated from God's presence by a thick, heavy curtain. And the high priest was only allowed behind that curtain once a year. And so these disciples are thinking, it's wonderful that Jesus is promising to prepare a place for them in the Father's house. It's fabulous that Jesus has promised to take them to the Father's house. But how do they know what the Father himself thinks about all this? How do they know the Father will be happy to have them in his house? That question seems to be behind the discussion Jesus has here with Thomas and Philip. Jesus says in verse 4, you know the way to the place where I am going. To which Thomas replies in verse 5, um, no, actually, I don't think we do know the way. Look at verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life, the sense is, I am the way because I am the truth and the life. So if we ask, how can Jesus be the way to God the Father? The answer is, firstly, because Jesus tells the truth about the Father. Jesus' words and actions provide the supreme revelation of the Father. The introduction to John's gospel says Jesus has made the Father known. Look at Jesus' actions, listen to Jesus' words, and you are hearing the words and seeing the character of the Father. It's not that Jesus and the Father are the same person. It's that Jesus is the true, reliable, and perfect disclosure of the Father. Jesus is the way to God the Father because he tells the truth about the Father. And secondly, Jesus is the way to the Father because he is the life. Jesus is not just a glorified messenger boy who passes on truth about God. That's what the Old Testament prophets were like. But Jesus is not simply the perfect prophet. He is the life. The life of God is in him. And he gives the life of God to us. That's why Jesus says in verse 7, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Jesus has not only prepared a future for us with the Father, He is the way to know the Father. If we know Jesus, then the Father is not some fearsome stranger we should be terrified of meeting. 
In case he takes a different approach to Jesus or requires something of us that Jesus doesn't require. That's a common idea, I think. The idea that we can be sure where we stand with Jesus because we've seen and heard a decent amount from Jesus in the pages of the New Testament, but the Father, well, who can be sure about him? Who can know what he really wants from us? That essentially is where Philip's at in verse 8 when he says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Philip calls Jesus Lord, which is good. And Philip has a desire to know the Father, which is also good. But Philip hasn't cottoned on to the fact that the Lord Jesus makes the Father known. So look again at verse 8. Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you I do not speak in my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or, at least, believe on the evidence of the works themselves. The works Jesus is talking about are the signs he has performed. Jesus' miracles were never party tricks. They were never light entertainment designed to draw a crowd. They were displays of God's glory. Different aspects of his glory. His glory as the one who provides for us. Not just the bare minimum, but the best. Think of the wine at the wedding in Cana, the first sign. And God is glorious because he provides to overflowing. Think of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 12 baskets left over. Jesus' signs displayed God's glory as the one who can heal us and even raise us from death. As the disciples reflect on those works of Jesus as well as his words, they must realize that in these things they have seen the Father as well. The Son and His Father are so united that although they are not the same person, remember in John's Gospel we've heard Jesus pray to His Father. Jesus was not praying to Himself. The Son and the Father are distinct persons, and yet they are so united in will and purpose that Jesus can say here, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Meaning my words and my works are equally the words and works of my Father. Now this is not new. The disciples haven't grasped it yet, but Jesus has been making these kind of statements all through John's Gospel pointing to his deepest unity with his Father. So much so that Jesus' entire life 
was both, was both a display of his own glory as the Son and also a display of the Father's glory through the Son. That is why Jesus says to these disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. Faced with the awesome reality of Almighty God and His perfect holiness and His perfect power, faced with the God of Mount Sinai with its thunder, lightning, and fire, the God who also in the New Testament is described as a consuming fire, Faced with that fearsome reality, these disciples do not need to despair. Why? Because they know Jesus. And Jesus is not a stepping stone on the path to knowing the God of Mount Sinai. Jesus' work on the cross was not a hopeful attempt to prepare a place for us with the God of Mount Sinai. No, Jesus is the way to know the God of Mount Sinai. Jesus' work on the cross was also the Father's work. And so it truly has prepared a future for us in His Father's presence. So we know the future is wonderful for those who know the Father because they know Jesus. But what about the present? Well, next week Jesus will have more to say about the present, but for starters, look at verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. Obviously, the part that gets our attention here is the statement that Jesus' disciples will do even greater things than what he has been doing. What does that mean? Does it mean they will do things that are more spectacular than what Jesus has been doing? Well, it's pretty hard to see how that is possible. I met a lady once who, within the first 30 seconds of our conversation, told me that she had raised the dead. It's quite an opening statement. It's quite an impressive trump card to lay down right away. The conversation didn't really go anywhere after that. I think she was waiting for me to lay out my credentials to see if I could match her, which of course I couldn't. I don't think getting two teenagers out of bed in the morning is quite as impressive, <laughs> although sometimes it seems nearly as difficult. <laughs> now, I'm not in a position to know whether that lady was telling me the truth. I might have my own ideas about it, but I'm not in a position to know but here's the thing, even if she was telling me the truth, what she did cannot be called greater than what Jesus did. In John chapter 11, we saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. 
after Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. And in fact, if we read on in the New Testament through the book of Acts, which records the work of the disciples after Jesus returned to heaven, the book of Acts does not show these disciples performing anything more spectacular than what Jesus did. So, if greater things does not mean more spectacular things, then what does it mean? How will Jesus' followers do greater things than he did? Well, the answer lies in what Jesus is about to do on the cross. The works Jesus did during his life on earth were necessarily limited. They were limited because he had not yet gone to the cross. Jesus had not yet accomplished the mission he came to accomplish, which was to win salvation for God's people and defeat death for God's people. Now, in a few hours' time, Jesus will have completed that work of salvation. In a few days, Jesus will have risen again. And his followers will then do their work in a situation that truly is different from before the cross and resurrection. Jesus' followers will call men and women to come and receive the benefits of what Jesus achieved on the cross. Earlier in John's Gospel, Jesus described himself as a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies. And once Jesus has done that on the cross, his followers will reap the fruit of what his death achieved. They will reap a harvest of men, women, and children from every nation on earth. Men, women, and children who find salvation through Jesus' work on the cross. That is why Jesus can say to his followers, they will do greater things. Someone has said, they are greater things because they are later things. They're greater things because they take place after the cross. When the victory and the benefits of the cross are there to be proclaimed and received by faith. The signs we've seen Jesus perform in John's gospel are wonderful. But the supreme sign, the supreme revelation of God's glory will be the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And that is what we proclaim today. That is the message of salvation we share today. Of course, we speak about Jesus turning water into wine. We speak of the healings he performed, the miraculous provision of food and so on. We speak about those things, but always the focus of what we say about Jesus is his death and resurrection. That is what reveals the fullness of his glory. That is what provides forgiveness for our sins and peace with God and hope for the future. And that is why, as followers of Jesus today, we do greater things 
than Jesus did on his time on earth before the cross. But actually, what verses 13 and 14 tell us is that it is Jesus himself who now does greater things on earth through us, reaping the rewards of his work on the cross. Look at those final verses and notice who is responsible for the greater things we do today. Verse 13, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, if you and I try to interpret these verses out of their context, we will make an absolute mess of interpreting them. Because in these verses, Jesus is not giving us an unrestricted, unconditional promise that he will do anything at all for us, whatever our heart desires. No, in these verses, Jesus is continuing to talk about what he's just been talking about. The fact that he's going to the cross to prepare a place for his people. And that after the cross will come the work of reaping, bringing in the harvest of salvation Jesus won on the cross. That is the context for this promise in verse 13, that I will do whatever you ask in my name. That is the context for what verse 14 says. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. In fact, notice in verse 13 why Jesus will do what we ask. He will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So Jesus assumes we understand the kind of requests he's talking about here are requests that seek the glorification of the Father and the Son. Of course, there are lots of other things we can legitimately pray about. But here, the kind of requests Jesus is promising to do are requests that the Father be glorified through the Son. Requests that the supreme display of God's glory, the message of the cross and resurrection, would gain ground in this world. That it would come to the nations with power. Does that feel like it deflates the significance of these verses? Does it make the promise a bit underwhelming when we see it that way? Well, not if you and I are committed to the same thing God is committed to, surely. These words are not underwhelming if we share the Father's delight in His Son and the Son's desire to see His Father glorified. If you and I long to see the Father and Son glorified for the salvation they have provided, then this is a cracking promise. We can pray that the Son will be honored as the only way to the Father. We can pray that the Father will be honored as the one who carries out His will through the Son. We can pray that our own lives today and tomorrow 
will bring glory to the Father and the Son. We can pray that men, women, and children will come to know the Father and the Son and receive salvation. We can pray all of those things, and to those kind of prayers, Jesus says, I will do it. Jesus has not withdrawn from us. Yes, after the cross and resurrection, he returned to heaven. Yes, we wait for him to come back for us, to bring us into the future he prepared for us on the cross. Yes. But in the meantime, Jesus has not withdrawn from us. He continues his work through us. So do not let your hearts be troubled. In Christ Jesus, your future is wonderful. And your life today counts. As you seek the glory of the Father through the Son, the risen Jesus promises to continue his work through you. That calls for a response, doesn't it? And we're going to respond to God's word together as we sing, first of all, a song of thanks that God has prepared a place for us. And then we'll sing a prayer, one of the prayers that Jesus loves to answer. May the peoples praise you.
Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope. May he encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Amen.